say that that last, uh, last little line of that song, uh, for him to be with all the dear children, is a prayer that we could pray uh, over them today. Hey, this morning as we uh, prepare to, uh, to go to the word of God, will you all bow with me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, I love you. I thank you for who you are. And Lord God, I pray and I just, I thank you that that prayer, be near me, Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord, it's an interesting prayer because we can only pray that prayer rooted in the promise that you said you would come to us. You would be with us and you would not leave us alone. Uh, that you would be with us until all the end of the age. Lord, that's, that our prayer is not rooted then in a wistful wish. Our prayer is rooted in a truth and a promise that you have given us. And so thank you, Lord. Uh, God, we do pray and we ask that you would be with us today. Uh, we ask that you would attend to us. I pray that you would um, give us what we need from, from this message, Lord. Uh, Lord, equip us, comfort us, challenge us. Break us where we need to be broken, Lord. Uh, God, uh, I pray and I ask that, uh, yeah, Lord, I pray and I ask that you'd be with me as I deliver uh, the message, that it would not just be a message from my lips, from my mouth. I, I might stand in the, in the role of the prophet delivering a message from you, the role of an angel delivering a message from you. A message whose authority uh, carries more weight than my own. For that, Lord, I, I pray for your spirit. I pray for your spirit to speak to me, instruct me, lead me. Uh, and, uh, Lord, I pray that I say nothing that your spirit doesn't lead me to say. I pray these things in Christ's mighty, resurrected name. Amen. Uh, so, in this season of Advent, where uh, there is this expectation, longing, waiting for the king. Uh, Brother Ron spoke rightly. They were wait, looking for a king. They wanted a king like, uh, like David, right? If you read throughout the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, they will measure whether a king uh, was good uh, by uh, whether or not they followed in the steps of David. If they did, he followed in the steps of David and, and had an honorable reign. Or he did not follow in the steps of David and he had a, a, you know, a, a condemnable reign. Uh, they were looking for one mighty warrior. And, uh, and so here we are, we're looking for Jesus to return. And as we said last week, uh, Jesus uh, has promised his return. Uh, he's promised his return. That's why we have a reason to wait. If Jesus had said, hey, this is just going to be the way life is, we would have nothing to wait for, right? If he had never delivered a promise to us, I, I, I go to my father's house, and if I go there, I will come again unto you, and I will gather you unto the father. Were it not for him to give a promise uh, to us like that, were his, his angelic messengers not to deliver, uh, to, to, to uphold and undergird that promise uh, uh, on the day that he ascended into heaven, 
Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye there looking up into heaven? Is this same Jesus who, who has gone from you will come again in like manner? Were we not promised we would have nothing to wait for? But because we've been given a promise, now we wait. So this is a season where we entered into the shared space of waiting. The interesting thing, though, is we wait. We wait not only with a promise, but we wait with like a greater assurance than, than, than Zacharias or Mary waited. And the reason for that is, is we wait for his promised return, living in the reality that he has already come. He has already been here. Uh, we wait for his promised return, knowing that even uh, whenever he went to death on the cross, he came back from that. He rose again the third day. Uh, we wait. Uh, this season of waiting, as Henry uh, Nguyen has put it, this attitude of waiting is not very popular. What say you? What say you? It's not very popular. We read this last week, but I'll read it again. He says, waiting is not something that people think about with great sympathy. Don't think about anybody else. Let's think about ourselves. Do you have great sympathy towards the idea of waiting? Let's ask this. If you see people who seem like they're not doing anything, do you feel the anxiety to encourage them? You need to be doing something. Don't just sit there and wait. <laughs> Let's put that into some practical terms, right? Uh, uh, the parents who are waiting for their child to launch. Right? Uh, let's see some action here. Let's see some activity. Uh, right? Uh, some of you ladies, y'all aren't very kind to young single men or young single females. Y'all go, well, what are you waiting for? Go find that one. And I'm sure they're like, oh, you're right. I've just been sitting here doing nothing, right? Just hoping that, you know, God would drop down this spouse out of heaven. Uh, and, and listen, I would not like to be in a situation where I was looking for a significant other at this point in my life. And I'm not just talking about being nearly 40. And, uh, you know, maybe not being a good prospect to other people. I'm talking about this day and age where people, uh, if, if you were to approach somebody in person, you would get scoffed at like a creep. But you could swipe right and that will fill their heart. And their stomach with all the butterflies. Oh, somebody swiped right on me, right? Yeah, like uh, if somebody approaches you, like, who are you? You, you? You're weird that you talk to me in person. So we don't have great sympathy for it. Let's con continue here. He goes on. He says, in fact, most people consider waiting a waste of time. For many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go. And people do not like such a place. They want to get out of it by doing something. And so sometimes we settle for doing something rather than doing the thing that is right and wise and necessary. 
He says all this because he, in an article that he wrote, he observes that it is really, uh, it is really notable and impressive, really, that all those that we meet in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel are waiting. Zacharias and Elizabeth are waiting for a son when they thought that waiting for such a thing was long past due. Zacharias is waiting to speak again. Mary is waiting to see her firstborn son through what seems to be impossible circumstances. Simeon, in chapter 2, He's waiting for the promise that he received that he would see the Christ, the Messiah, before he died. Anna, the prophetess, she is waiting for redemption, for the redemption of God's people. After a long-lived life of fasting and prayer, night and day at the temple, they are waiting. And he he goes on to expound upon his observations of this, and, and I've, taken, uh, I've taken his lead, and, and I followed, and, and begin to, to, to read this story and, and, and to make some observations myself. And what I find is, while everybody is waiting, we know that there are some different responses to the message that Gabriel delivered to Zacharias and Mary. We read together what is called the Magnificat. Oh, my soul blesses the Lord, or, or my soul doth magnify the Lord. He's looked upon me, this slave girl from Nowheresville. And now everybody in the world is going to say, you are highly favored. You're blessed of God. Wow. How he can transform our lives. Now, this wasn't Mary's first response to Gabriel. We read in Luke chapter number 1 that Mary's first response to Gabriel was, okay, how is any of this going to be possible? Could you give me the game plan here? I'm hearing what you're saying, Gabriel. I'm not saying that it can't happen. I want to know how it is going to happen. And Gabriel tells her, hey, uh, this is not going to be with your, with your, uh, uh, your bridegroom, Joseph. This is going to be this miraculous thing with the Holy Ghost. And Mary, in a note of surrender, says, be it unto me. Behold, I'm just the slave girl of God. I'm just a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me just as you have said. At that time, she was surrendered to the reality. And it's only later that she celebrates. It's only later that she celebrates. After she has seen Elizabeth. After she knows, in fact, there is a, a baby in her womb. After she, Elizabeth prophesies over her. Who dawns my door? Wow. The one who's carrying the king of kings is here with me. 
to what do I owe this great pleasure? Uh, Zacharias' response was different, right? You remember the story? Gabriel shows up to Zacharias. Gabriel uh, uh, delivers this word. Zacharias and Elizabeth aren't going to have the king. They're going to have the one who prepares the way. The prophet who goes before and says, Make way for prince. Ali. Right, the one who prepares the way. It goes ahead, who gets the people's hearts, minds, lives ready. There's a king coming. Zacharias, he asks a question which looks like it could be an honest question. He says, uh, how will I know this to be true? How, how are you going to prove this to me? See, I'm old. I'm well past the years of, 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 of producing children. Uh, Gabriel takes exception with Zacharias' tone. Gabriel says, do you not know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. I deliver his messages, and you're going to dare not believe what I'm telling you? All right, I'll answer your question. Here's how you'll know. Here's how you'll know. That you will have this son. You're silent until after he's born. Now, I consider Gabriel's uh, response to Zacharias a little harsh at times. It seems a little shoot from the hip, right? You know, but that's Gabriel. If you know anything about Gabriel and how he's depicted in, in, in any ancient Jewish literature, then you know Gabriel is a warrior. And Gabriel, uh, he, 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 he has some bravado, and Gabriel has a place. He has legitimate authority, and Gabriel will not stand and will not tolerate uh, such disrespect. Gabriel thought, I just told you what's going to happen. I'm Gabriel. You swallow it, right? You, you take it in. You accept it. But here's something that I think we need to really consider. While Gabriel uh, saw his response as inexcusable, there is reason, there is reason that Zacharias would respond in such a way. They'd never had a child. And, uh, and in those days, just as today, and probably in some ways a little bit more than even today, they really wanted a child. That's how you passed on your legacy. The only way that you could live beyond this life, and a lot of people's expectation, was to, for you to live on through your children, through the next generation. The only way that, that, that your great-great-grandfather, his life is still being honored and lived today, is through me. And if I don't have children, who's going to carry on that legacy? Who's going to tend this land that for, for, for uh, Jewish, uh, for, for, for uh, the people of Israel, who's going to tend this land that has been in our family for generations? All of these things come into question. But here's the deal. They had waited a long time, and they had never. And so here's what I would say. I don't even think it's reasonable to say, well, Zacharias didn't trust the Lord. 
Zacharias was a man of faith. Uh, it seems inexcusable to Gabriel, but we should understand that it is within reason. And the, the, the point that I want to make here just for a moment is this. Uh, our faith is always going to be at odds with our reason. And so this is not to justify or excuse Zacharias, but for us to identify with Zacharias. What if Zacharias was like, we can't take it again? You know how many pregnancies ended in stillbirths for us? We can't take this pain again. I need, I need, I need, so, so, I need, we've been hopeful before. I need a sign. I need something to tell me this is actually going to happen. Because listen, I have a bride at home. And, and many years ago, we reconciled ourselves to the fact that children, children were not going to be gifted to us. And that was a hard, hard, hard road to travel. And now you're telling me, you're giving me a little bit of hope. Yeah, I want to believe you, but I've had hope before. I think that this is important for us, especially in a, in, in, in a congregation of our demographic that, you know, a lot of times people will say, you know, like, you know, uh, you know you've lived enough life and you have enough experience that that, that that has actually secured your hope. But what Zacharias reveals to us is we should be cautious because we've lived enough life. We've seen enough moments where we were hopeful and nothing fruitful came from it. That it might challenge us to be trustworthy or trusting. It actually might jade us. And maybe right now, instead of you looking for Jesus and longing for Jesus, it might feel a little bit like that's just a wistful wish. And, and especially if we think about it in, in, in all the stories that we even tell around uh, uh, Christmas, all the myths that we tell around Christmas. And I won't go beyond that because I'm not that pastor who's going to blow up those things for somebody who might hear this, who is a child. Are we all tracking? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. All the myths that we tell around Christmas. Maybe, maybe we need to challenge our hearts to ask ourselves, are we really hoping and longing for the return of Jesus? Is that how we are living our lives? Is that how we are shaping our lives? Now, all of this, this observation that I can understand Gabriel's response. I'm not excusing it. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying I get it. And really, I don't think it's just even to understand it. I think, I think wisdom would teach us we should observe humans and understand where one another is coming from.
I understand Gabriel's uh, exception because Gabriel uh, had authority. He had legitimate authority. But this is what I find interesting. As we began looking in John chapter number 14 last week, we will return to there this week. This is what I find interesting is that Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going, I'm coming again. And they question him. Right? If you look at the story, as we read it, beginning in chapter number 13, uh, where are you going? How can't we know how, how, to, how to go there? Their questions are rooted in anxiety, fear, sorrow, grief, all the things. And Jesus doesn't respond like Gabriel. Jesus doesn't go, do you know who you're talking to? You know what authority I have? Have I been with you all this time, revealed my authority, and now you're going to question me the night before I'm about to go lay down my life for you? You sorry bunch. I can't with you. I'm, I'm, I'm three and a half years. I spent a lifetime in three and a half years with you, right? Is that how Jesus responds? This is our first point that we want to pick up. And we, I, I want to reiterate this every single time we come to knowing the character of God, the character of Jesus. Because you and I don't imagine Jesus. We don't imagine God in the ways that Jesus reveals God to us. We know this because you can look at every other religion in this world and how people have imagined the gods. And the gods are never for the people. They're never patient with the people. They're never uh, kind and tender-hearted towards the people. Uh, the gods always have to be bought off. You know why the gods have to be bought off? Because our politicians have to be bought off. Right? Because that's how you and I do it. So we take and we image gods, and the image that we have of gods is never it's never the way that Jesus reveals to us. And even those of us who've read scripture and we've been in church for a long time, what you have, what you have probably come up against is, is, is even in good independent fundamental Baptist churches where we put scripture as central, a lot of y'all and me, we've, we've received and we've taught, and we have to deal with both of these aspects of this. We've received. But that God kind of acts like Gabriel. Who are you to talk to me? Who I am? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't even see God prepared, uh, uh, revealing himself like that with Moses at the burning, fiery bush. Moses goes, hey, God, I can't do this. I, I have a speech impediment. And God goes, well, I just told you to do something. Don't you know that I'm God? Blah, blah, blah. He says, hey. We have a workaround. Don't you have Aaron? I'll let Aaron be your mouthpiece, man. Come on. Look, we can work through this together. Jesus, Jesus listens to his disciples. 
He fills their questions. He answers their questions. Now, at the end of John chapter number 16, they go, why do you keep speaking to us in all these riddles, in all these proverbs? Why can't you just say it plainly, Jesus? Here's why you couldn't say it plainly. It's confounding. It's complex. And so Jesus began, and last week he said, I'm going to give you a promise, and this is something that you can hope in. And one of the reasons why I'm giving you this promise is because I want to bring you comfort, and I want to bring you peace. I see your hearts are anxious. I want to attend to your heart. I see there's some fear. I don't want to just say, stop being anxious and afraid. I want to attend to your fears and your anxiety. I want to minister to you. You know what I know? I'm not very patient. I was talking to Dr. Boone right before this. I'm not very patient when somebody else gets anxious. I don't like getting anxious for a few moments. And, and, and so if I see somebody else getting anxious, my first thought isn't like, okay, let's attend to this person. My first thought is like, stop being anxious. Have y'all found yourselves doing that? This is why we can marvel at Jesus. Jesus, who has this authority, doesn't sit there and say, well, I'm Jesus. Don't question me. Jesus also has the patience and the, and the compassion and the wherewithal to go, you're being anxious right now. And I don't mean to speak like and tell you stop. I need to work with you through this. So the first thing he does is he gives them the promise. The second thing that he does, and we find it in John chapter number 14. We'll begin in verse number uh, 14. Is this. He says, We'll begin with 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is what I'm asking you to do. You, you prove and show and reveal your love to me by keeping my commandments. What's the commandment? That you love one another. <laughs> you love God. You love everybody, even the difficult people. Now, that doesn't mean your love towards the difficult people isn't without boundaries or parameters. Is it without wisdom in and of itself? Uh, but you attend to them, you care for them in the ways that they need to be attended to and cared for. And he says, I'm asking you to do this. Let me tell you what I'm going to be doing. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Listen, I see that you, your hearts are, are having a hard time receiving this reality that I'm going away and I will come again. But you don't know whenever I, you don't know where I'm going except to, to say that I'm going to the Father and you don't know whenever I'm coming back. This waiting thing is open-ended. And I, I will pray to the Father and he shall give you another comforter. Anybody ever call your bedsheet a comforter, your duvet a comforter, right? Are there, is there a difference between duvets and comforters? Okay, well, then we've settled that issue. I want to bring this up because 
whenever you hear the word comforter, whenever I was a kid growing up, we didn't have a lot of A's. We had comforters. And we had throw blankets and we had afghans. And we had quilts. And now y'all get a little image of how my house was. Okay, now, uh, when we hear the word comforter, we might not feel the weight of this word. The word in Greek is paraklete or parakletos. It means an advocate. It would be the one who would stand with you whenever you had to answer on your day in court. It'd be your trial lawyer, as Jack Wisdom would say. Proudly because he's a trial lawyer. So comforter can sound a little bit like, well, I just want you all to be comforted. And it can sound real kind of superficial. Some of y'all might take that word and it might have deep meaning to you. But because we called our, our, our blankets on our beds comforters, I need a heavier word. Advocate. One who will stand with you in the fight. One who will be with you when you are afraid and your anxieties are out of control. One who will be with you when you are angry and you can't control, you feel like you can't control your temper. One who will be with you in the struggle to wait with the character of Christ. I'm sending an advocate to you. That he may be with you, that he may abide or dwell with you forever. <clears throat> this advocate is the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not. Neither knows him. But here, my disciples, you know him. You know him because he dwells with you and he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. Again, let's pause about this word comfortless. I won't be, <clears throat> that sounds like I will always be there to say, now there, 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 there. And if you don't read it that way, that's how I read it. The Greek word is orphanos. I will not orphan you. I will not abandon you. Does that take on a little bit more weight? Think about our orphans in Ukraine. And we have been fighting here uh, for a long time to let them know we are not going to abandon them in this war. Sorry, sorry, they're dropping shells. <laughs> we'll be back later. We'll be back at a more convenient time. I love that Sean was over there just this last week. He's on his way home today. Uh, when we went in June, we had uh, taken some armored uh, flat jackets or whatever you call it, ballistics vest um, and helmets. We really didn't even need them. Today, our team's driving around need them and Sean Sean is not going hey it's not really convenient for me sorry I could die over there 
John's going, I'm not going to abandon. I'm not going to leave the orphans orphaned by mission 823. Isn't that awesome? Uh, And then Jesus says, I will come to you. Now, at this point, because Jesus has already talked about his return after his resurrection, right? He, he, he's already kind of, he's gone back and forth. Some people on the surface might look at this and go, oh, he's talking about coming again in the future. Uh, Andres Kostenberger uh, cautions. He says, though, yet a little while in John 14, 19, and on that day in John 14, 20, at first blush may appear to refer to Jesus' resurrection appearance, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away, and then I'm going to come again, and you're going to see me for a little while, then I'm going to go away again. First blush, you might think whenever he says, I'm going to come again, he's talking about, oh, after the resurrection, you'll see me for a little while, and then I'll go away again. He says, Jesus' promise in John 14, 18 not to leave his disciples as orphans, is hardly satisfied by his resurrection appearances. Those were temporary in nature. More likely, John 14, 18 refers to the permanent placement or the permanent replacement of his presence with the Spirit. This is also suggested by Jesus' response to Judas in, question, in chapter 14, verse number 23, with reference to his and the fathers making their dwelling in believers as a further explicating of John 14, 18. If you didn't get all that, he says, what makes the best sense given the context is not that Jesus is talking about after I'm raised from the dead, you will see me for a little bit and then I'm going to go away. He is saying, after I go away, after I exalt, after I am ascended to the Father's right hand, I'm going to come to you in the person of the Spirit, the advocate that I'm sending to you. That will be my presence with you. Kostenberger goes on to say, Jesus' identification with the Spirit, the other parakletos, is so strong that he can say that he himself will return to his followers in the person of the Spirit. And this is the big point. Is that Jesus is with us in the waiting. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. At that day, ye shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. You know when the uh, disciples first got to experience this reality? It was on the day of Pentecost. When the promise of the Paracletos had come. And they knew at that day, that Jesus is with the Father. Father's with Jesus, and they're with us, even while we wait for Jesus to come back again.
He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he, is, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Then Judas, not the Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? Again, I want us to see. Jesus has just said this, and, and, he, and he, here's another question. And Jesus doesn't go, why do y'all keep asking questions? Why don't you just accept what I said? Don't you know who I am? Jesus is attending to him. Jesus is loving his disciples through this. Jesus answered and said unto me, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We will be with you before I come again. Before you see me again. You're going to see me for a little while. I'm going to go away through death. I'm going to come back through resurrection. And then I'm going to go away. Before I come back again. And when you don't see me anymore. You need to know this. I will pray to the Father. He will send the Paracletos, the Advocate. And I identify so strongly with the Paracletos that you can understand this, that I am with you until, I, until you see me again, know I am there. Now, do I understand all of this uh, full theologically? I accept it. Do I understand how it works out physically, uh, you know, uh, metaphysically? I don't understand all the things. I trust them to be true. But here's the deal. This is a reality. This is a comforting word that Jesus gave to his disciples. Yes, you're going to wait. And last week he said, but what are we waiting for? We're, we're, we're waiting for him to return, <laughs> to gather us all together unto the Father. And, we, and our imaginations can go wild with what that means. We wait, yes. But Christ waits with us. As I've said before, one of the chief implications of this that I see is his character. His character to attend to us because he knows that waiting, as we said last week, is a scary thing. Waiting is not just uh, inopportune. Waiting, especially on a promise, such as the one that we have. Waiting can be a little scary, because what if I'm waiting and it never happens? That's the biggest thing that I want us to see this morning, is Jesus doesn't act like Gabriel. And we see it, but then also Jesus goes, here's how you know that all that I'm saying is going to be true. In the spirit, I'm going to be present with you. And what does he go on to tell us about the spirit? The spirit will lead you into all truth. 
I will lead you into all truth. I will walk with you. I will attend to you. I know waiting is hard. We don't have any sympathy for it. I know waiting is a fearful place to be. I'm not forsaking you in the waiting. Here's what I invite you to do this week. Let's seek God for all the implications of what it means for Jesus to be with us in the waiting. Why don't you just begin asking that question? Hey, God, you're, what, what can I take from this? Here's what I think is so awesome is we see guys like Paul. Paul wasn't even there at this time. Paul was on the other side at this time. Paul was probably rounding up the Sanhedrin and saying, hey, we're about to have a trial for Jesus of Nazareth. Get ready. Right? But Paul would go on to say, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, after he received the Spirit, and he received that in the Spirit was Jesus. However that confounding mystery happens, let's just let it be a mystery. And then Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. Paul could say, I can do all things because Christ gives me strength. Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer, uh, uh, it is no longer I who live, yet it is Christ who's alive in me. This life in the flesh that you see me living is Christ's life. So he's with us not only to comfort us, but also to equip us so that the life that we live is the life of Christ. What other implications might you need? Might the Spirit be speaking to you? Let's do this this morning. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes right now. Let's enter into just a time where we can even ask that question. Maybe we can celebrate these and we can thank God for these. Maybe we still go, God, show me some others. Uh, Lord, here's what I'm going to ask that you would do. Is that you would speak to us over these next few minutes. You give us space right now. Uh, Lord, here's what I would ask us as well. Maybe we aren't really hoping and waiting in the promise. Maybe that's just something that it, it, it's part of our belief system and, we, and we, we know it. But like to say that we are like like we are actively waiting for your son Jesus to return and living our lives in such a way that we are actively waiting for his return. And all that that means. Maybe you would reveal to us, hey, maybe you're not really 
Maybe we've grown a little bit like Zacharias. Reason has led us to believe that maybe, maybe we won't see Christ return. Maybe that's it. We trust that you're going to return, but man, it's been 2,000 years. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. And so we don't even really expect to see it. Lord, just speak to us, I pray.